Hello, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. My name is Greg Boyd. Uh, I'm senior pastor here at Wilden Hills Church. Uh, some of you may not recognize me because I haven't been here for a while. It's good to be back. Been out for three weeks. Uh, Shelly and I had a little vacation, celebrated our 30th anniversary. Hoo ho! Yeah, she is a very blessed woman, isn't she? I mean, everyone just agrees with that. Yes. It's, but uh, it's good to be back. I really appreciate Dwayne uh, giving the message he gave, and then Kevin giving the message he gave, and then last week uh, we had Rob Bell here, and that was a blast. And so uh, it's just really good to have such uh, competent folks uh, filling in the pulpit. Uh, but now you've got to put up with me once again, so I'm back. So let's deal with it. We're uh, studying the book of Luke. Uh, what we do here at Woodland Hills Church is just kind of study the Bible, and then we'll go on a few detours and, and t- look at different topics for a while, but we always come back. Uh, to expository preaching. So we're in the book of Luke, and we're up to chapter 20, and we'll be reading nine verses this morning, and I'm entitling this message, uh, The Stone the Builders Rejected, because that's what this passage is about. It is very literally a foundational message for us. It'll be a review for a lot of us, but it's the kind of thing that we need to be reminded of, I think, with some frequency, because it's so foundational. And as I read these passages, I'll make some comments, exegetical, interpretive comments. uh, And then when we're done with that, I'll apply it to, uh, I'll offer an application to our lives. So it says this, Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Pause for a moment. These farmers were actually very fortunate and should have been grateful. Because in the ancient world, uh, uh, it was only wealthy people who really owned land. Farmers usually had to work someone else's land. And very frequently, they'd be hired for a season. They'd plant the crop, and then harvest the crop, and then they'd be gone. Um, You were really fortunate if an owner asked you to be a tenant, to live on the land and work the land, uh, year after year, because the owner was going somewhere else. You had job security, which was really rare back then. In fact, it's kind of rare still. (laughs) Uh, But these these farmers should have been very grateful. But as we're going to see here in a moment, they were anything but grateful. One other thing to note at the the get-go is that uh, Jesus is here using the metaphor of a vineyard. The vineyard is the metaphor throughout the Old Testament of Israel. And I say that to just highlight that the, the audience here would know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Some parables, you know, are, are kind of ambiguous, but this one's not. His audience would know from the get-go that this is going to be a parable about Israel and about the leaders of Israel and about God dealing with the leaders of Israel. And so we'll see at the end of this parable that the leaders know exactly what he's been talking about. Uh, and they're, they're rather angry about it. Moving on, it says, At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants, that's the farmers, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's what they're supposed to do. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. It's insane. These tenants are acting like they own the land. And through their actions, they're saying to the owner, this is not your land, this is our land. We don't plan on giving you anything. Uh, the owner would have been completely within his rights after the first servant was rejected to call in the law enforcement and at the very least kick them off the land. 
this, this, this owner is showing remarkable, stunning patience uh, with these farmers. But his patience increases even more when he does this. He says, the owner of the vineyard said, well, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Because this is the highest authority now. This is the heir to the whole land. Maybe if they won't do the right thing for the right reasons, they'll at least respect authority. So he's going to send his own son. At this point, the owner is looking absurdly patient. And that's the point. Because this is a story about God and about Israel. And God was absurdly patient with Israel, sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Whenever the prophets would call Israel to account to be a productive vineyard, the leaders of the nation would beat, abuse, and sometimes kill those prophets. And so finally God sent his own son. The patience of God is the point of this parable at this point. Then it says, when the tenants saw the son, they talked the matter over. In other words, this was premeditated. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. First humiliated him by throwing him out of the vineyard, saying, this is not your vineyard, and then killed him. What must have been going on in the farmer's mind, if you can enter it, the only way this is plausible is that they must have assumed that the father had died, that's why the son was coming, and they must have assumed that this was the only son. Because if, if the father and the son are both dead and there's no one else who has a legal claim to the land, because only males had property rights back in those days, then the farmers could maybe think they could make a claim to ownership of this land. So that's probably what's going on in their jaded minds. And so they humiliate and kill the son. Jesus goes on to say, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, his time for patience is over. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. May Geneton greet. They were shocked, horrified. May it never be. Now, they weren't horrified at the judgment that was inflicted on these tenants. That was totally understandable. In fact, if the owner had inflicted judgment on the farmers after the first servant got beaten, he would have been within his rights. So they're not surprised at that. What they're horrified over is the idea that the son is going to be killed because Jesus has identified himself as the son. And they're still operating with a nationalistic, military, victorious model of the Messiah. So the idea that the Son, the Messiah, is going to be killed is horrifying. They're also horrified at the idea that, that their leaders are going to uh, carry this out. They know their leaders aren't perfect for sure, but to think that their own leaders would do such a thing is horrifying to them. And then the idea that God's going to now give this care of the vineyard, uh, the kingdom, to someone else is horrifying to them. So Jesus looks at them in their horror and he says this. He says, Jesus looked directly at them in response to their shock. He stared down his audience. The Bible says he does that quite a bit. He stares down the audience. When he's really intense. And he says, then you tell me, what is the meaning of that which is written? And now he's going to quote Psalms 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I'll unpack that saying a little bit later on. But the gist of it 
is that that which seemed insignificant, a stone that was a throwaway stone, became the foundation for everything God is doing in this world. It became something very, very significant, become the cornerstone. And it was initially applied to King David because King David was a little insignificant shepherd boy, right? A throwaway stone, but he became the foundation uh, for the nation of Israel, this great and mighty nation. And now Jesus is applying that same teaching to himself. And he's saying, I am going to be the rejected stone, rejected as insignificant, defective. But wait around and you'll see that God will then turn this rejected stone into the cornerstone, the, the, the foundation of what he's going to be doing in world history. He applies it to himself. Then he goes on to say, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. What does that mean? The, the, the essence of that saying was, I think, captured by a rabbinic proverb that was circulating about 100 years after the time of Jesus. And this proverb says this, If the stone falls on the pot, woe to the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. In other words, in the arena of stone versus pot, the pot loses. <laughs> One way or another, the pot's going to lose. doesn't matter if the pot falls on the stone or the stone falls on the pot. pot loses. So also Jesus is saying, if you declare war on this stone, if this stone is not the cornerstone of your existence, you're going to collide with that stone. And in the arena of, of rejected cornerstone versus people, people always lose one way or another. It may crush you, it may break you to pieces, but it's not going to be pretty. It's in your interest to make this cornerstone your cornerstone. Then it says, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. They were mad. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. This was a very clear parable. But they were afraid of the people. The opinion polls are still high on Jesus. They knew what Jesus was getting at, but rather than, once again, rather than repenting and turning, rather than doing that, they actually just start to plot on how they can reject this defective stone. And they will not hear the prophecy that this will become the cornerstone. So this parable... This parable is a parable about God and his patience with Israel. It's a parable about Israel's ongoing stubbornness and, and, and how they've treated the prophets. It's a parable about how God is going to use Jesus as a rejected stone and, and, and make him the cornerstone for, for the advancing kingdom of God. But what I want to do now is to ask the question, what does it mean for us here this morning? all in this auditorium or those who are listening through podcasts or television, what does it mean for you and what does it mean for me to make this rejected stone the cornerstone, the foundation for our life. Pray with me here for a moment. Holy Spirit, this is something we need reminding of over and over and over again because there's so many things in our culture, in this world, the pattern of this world, this uh, demonically oppressed world, so many things that compete for ultimate allegiance in our life, to be the foundation of our existence. So God, use this to wake us up to maybe all of the false foundations that we have laid in order to cling to you as the only foundation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Cultivate the soil to make it deep, to find firm rooting and to bear fruit. 
that we'd be part of your vineyard. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. I want to, at the start, uh, put all the cards on the table uh, and admit that I'm not at all comfortable uh, dealing with the architectural analogy that this whole passage hangs on. Uh, that's not my domain. It's like somebody who doesn't like sports at all using a sports analogy. It just doesn't come natural to me. Uh, anything to deal with architecture or design or building things or fixing things or basically anything practical whatsoever is out of my domain. <laughs> I just don't operate in that, that zone. I, I, uh, I'm not a manly man. I, I, I wish I was, but I, 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 I was one kid in eighth grade who didn't like shop class. Everyone else was like, yes, favorite class. It, it, was, it was a nightmare for me. I almost flunked it. I, I, I can't build this stuff. I don't know what it is. There's something missing in my brain when it comes to building, fixing, designing, architecture, anything. We had a stool that we had to make. This is the main project. And I could not, for my life, make that stool even. It was always this wiggly kind of thing. And so I'd level off one, one, one leg. What's it called? Yeah, it's called a leg, yes. I'd, I'd level it off, but then it'd be tilting. I'd level that one off, it'd be tilting. And, and this, the stool got shorter and shorter and shorter. <laughs> At the end, it was sort of like a footstool. It was the joke of the class. I, I, I just... Can't do that. I'm, I so admire. We got two guys in our small group who are really good at fixing things. So when everything's broken, we can call them over. One more yes for small groups. <laughs> Someone in there's going to know how to do something. And uh, uh, I, I'm just amazed. They can walk into a room and they, you know, and, and they just know how to fix stuff. I don't know. How, how do you know that? Even electricity and toilets that don't work and we want to lay down some tile here and, and, and the door hinge and, and light bulbs. And they know how to do this stuff. I'm amazed. I look back and I'm stunned. How do you know how to do that? It's sort of intuitive. Heidegger's being in time, no problem. Faucets, forget it. I, I can deal with Heidegger's being in time. But practical stuff, I, in, in grad school, when I was going through grad school, I, you know, you, you, I take any job I could get. Not at all picky. I need money. And this friend of mine in church uh, had the misfortune of hiring me as an assistant to him uh, for a company he had building three-season porches. It was a nightmare, a nightmare. I could not measure things. I, I, you had to measure these rods out because the whole thing based on these rods, and you have a 1 16th margin of error. And, and I was proud if I got it within a quarter of an inch. Uh, I would measure and remeasure and re-remeasure and draw the line just exactly right and cut it just... I, I, it really seemed to me that those rods would either grow or shrink after I cut them because they never turned out right. So they finally gave me the grunt assignments where I would be the one to go get the lunch and I'd be the one to carry the stuff. And that I can do. Manual labor I'm good at. Get me to think about something practical. It's not going to work. Spent one summer, took any job I could, so I was a masonry laborer. And... Uh, they allowed me to build one scaffold. You know, you had to build these things to carry the bricks up to the top. I, I, part of the job was to do that, and I built one and almost killed two people because it <laughs> fell apart. I don't know why. It's just So there again, they assigned me to do the grunt jobs. I was the one who dug the ditches and mixed the mud, the mortar, and carried the bricks and things of that sort. Now, because I was consigned to the nasty job of digging ditches, I learned one thing about architecture. Designing buildings. And it, it's the one piece of experience I can latch onto that gives me a hold on this, uh, an avenue into this passage here this morning. Foundations are all important. Uh, a building can never be more solid than the foundation that you lay for. The bigger the, the, the building, the deeper the foundation's got to go. 
The edifice hangs on the foundation. I learned that because I'm the one who dug the foundations. Now, in ancient Palestine, they didn't dig down, usually, to build a building. They didn't lay foundations like that. The foundation was laid at the first level of the building above the ground. And that meant that the cornerstones were all important. What they would do if you're going to build a house uh, of stones is you'd find the biggest and the strongest, the mightiest rocks you could find, and they would be the cornerstones, all four corners of the house. And that's really the foundation. And then they would build the rock walls, and I don't quite understand this because I'm deficient when it comes to anything architectural, but they would build the rocks uh, kind of where the pressure would lean against the foundational stones. So it would would be like a lean-to, and they built it towards the center with all the pressure going on those four cornerstones. I don't understand it either, so don't worry about it, but but you just got to know that the whole weight of the house hung on those cornerstones. While they're building the house, you know, they, they, they... the rich people got to have made bricks, but everyone else just used rocks. And so you'd be building the wall with rocks that you could find around, and you'd be cementing them together, putting all the weight on the cornerstones. And when you came upon a rock that didn't fit anywhere, or that was defective, uh, it was cracked perhaps, you rejected it. You threw it away. So you have the foundational stones that are big and mighty and strong. You have the rejected stones that are defective and weak and insignificant. They don't fit anywhere. What Jesus is saying with this teaching, this is the punchline of this parable. The stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The idea you get is that as they're building a, a, a wall, there's a stone that doesn't fit anywhere. It's defective. It's weak. It just does, it's, it's useless. So you throw it away. But just as you throw it away, God, the master builder, comes along and gets that little insignificant stone and in a way that only God can do, he makes it into the cornerstone. And off of, the, off of that little rejected stone makes this incredible edifice. It's the kingdom of God. It'd be like making the, building a Taj Mahal on this little rock that got rejected. It's a stunning metaphor that's being used here. And Jesus is that stone that is rejected that's become the cornerstone. Now, the question it raises for us is, What kind of stone is Jesus in our life? Is he the foundational stone that bears the whole weight of the house of our life? Or is he a rejected stone? There's different ways of rejecting him as a stone, uh, of considering him worthless or defective. You can do that in a very explicit way by saying things like, well, this is all just a story. The gospels are just myth. The gospels are just legend. It's a defective story. You throw it away. It doesn't have any role in your life. Or some people just say, I don't care. I got my life going on now. I don't care if he's the son of God, savior, all that stuff. I, I, I don't, it doesn't fit into my life anyway. So that, that, that's another way of just sort of tossing him aside. But there's a lot more subtle ways. Maybe it seems too rude to just say, bah, with the whole thing. Too dangerous because it might turn out to be true. So you could take this stone. And it doesn't really fit into your life because you like your life the way it is. So you just kind of put them on the shelf. That's like a throwaway stone. You're just, doing, you're just a little more polite than the other people. You put it on the shelf. Maybe you even take it down once in a while, look at it, talk to it once in a while, visit it at church once in a while, but it doesn't really fit into your life in any kind of important way. He's certainly not the foundation of your life. But see, for people who are, are kingdom people, if you've got eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that's open to the reign of God, then what you see is that this stone, Jesus Christ, is the rock that lasts forever. This stone has got to be the foundation for everything. This stone has got to be the, the, the support that's, that, 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 that shoulders the whole weight of your house. This stone has got to be the anchor for everything. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, this stone is anything 
but a rejected stone. It's the foundation for the whole thing. The reality is, is that we're all houses under construction. We all should wear little signs on our front that says house under construction. We are constructing a house. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It's, it's really kind of a good one with Kevin Klein, Life as a House. Uh, it, it captures that metaphor really, really good. That we are all, with every decision we make and every action we take, we are in the process of building something. The question is, what are we building? And the more fundamental question is, on what are we building it? The house that you're building is the meaning and the purpose and the significance of your house. What are you building? And on what foundation is it being laid? Some people build a house, a house of fame, on the foundation of their stunning good looks, or on the foundation of their incredible talents, or on the foundation of their incredible intelligence. There are other people who are building a house of, a house of comfort on the foundation of their wealth. Others build a house of pride on the foundation of, of, foundation of their, their accomplishments. Some people are building a house of pleasure on the foundation of their sexual escapades and experiences or maybe drug-induced highs. And there are other people who are building a house of security on the foundation of religion, on the rightness of their behavior, the holiness of their beliefs. There's a lot of different houses you can build, a lot of different foundations that you can use. But the question you got to ask is, what will become of that foundation and therefore what will become of that house when the winds start blowing and the rains start pounding and the storms start coming as they invariably do, where will that house be? Where will your house be when the, you no longer have those stunning good looks? Because they do tend to leave. Where will your house be when the talents are no longer that exceptional? Where will the house be when you no longer have that wealth? Uh, and even if you manage to hold on to that wealth all your life, where will that house be when you die because you don't take a dime of it w with you? What kind of house are you building? Where will your house be when the sexual escapades are getting boring or you're, maybe you're no longer capable of them or maybe no one is any longer interested in you? Where will your house be? Where will your house be when your accomplishments are now a distant memory? In fact, maybe no one remembers them. They're just part of the dust of history. What kind of house are you building? Where will it be when the rains fall and the wind blows, the earthquakes? The reality is that every house built on every foundation that you can produce will fail. Every house built on every foundation of anything you can touch, taste, see, feel, experience will fail. Because the entire world around us, everything you can touch, taste, see, feel, experience, is disappearing before your eyes, even right now. It's all moving towards nothingness. It's all ultimately dust in the wind. It's all fading away. And so anything that you base on that will eventually fail you sooner or later. And the weird thing is that we all already know this. Our hearts tell us this. We try to avoid this topic because it's rather unpleasant. But at the core of our being, we know that we live in a void of nothingness. The etherealness of being presses in on us all the time. And the older you get, the more you kind of wake up to that. It may strike you as a sort of inner anxiety that's just sort of there. A sense of emptiness and alienation that's just sort of there. Or maybe a sort of dull depression you, know, you just don't have the motivation you used to have. You're, you're, you're deflated. 
There's a fatigue that's there, maybe a, a difficulty focusing. It's the encroachment of nothingness on our existence, and it's painful. Our hearts know that we live in this void of nothingness, and it's all sinking, it's all disappearing, it's all going to nothingness, it's all fading away before our eyes. Now, if you can't handle that, you try to medicate it. So you try to, we try to run from the emptiness. We don't like that feeling at all. So we try to distract ourselves in, in different ways. One way of doing it is called a midlife crisis. That's when it starts to really encroach on you. You begin to realize that all the hopes and dreams you had aren't necessarily going to pan out as you wanted. And you start to feel that meaninglessness, that emptiness, that void, like it's all being wasted. And all of a sudden, you come to the conclusion that your wife's to blame. That's the problem. You never really loved her. No, who, yeah, you know, it, it, was, it was never a real thing. But that church secretary, man, she's the thing going on. So you know, move out with her and start wearing cowboy hats and driving a Harley motorcycle and smoking Marlboro cigarettes. And now you're going to find the real life. It takes about one year before you realize that that you just traded in one nothingness for another. Not a good idea. Meantime, you blew up a whole lot of things that were precious and valuable. But that's what people do to run from the nothingness. Other people pour themselves into uh, entertainment and just watch movies all the time. Or other people can pour themselves into some sports activity or some kind of political activity. Or other people pour themselves into their work and become workaholics. Some people uh, handle the, the alienation and the emptiness, what Kierkegaard called the sickness unto death. It's this existential angst, a sickness unto death, this dread, fear on the inside. They'll handle it by living vicariously through other people. Sometimes people, since their life is feeling so empty, they pour it into their kids and, and they kind of get a sense of substance, some kind of substance. I feel a little bit less like nothingness when I'm poured into my kids and it's good to pour into your kids, but when you do it like that, it's just a distraction from your own nothingness. Some people, and this is the one that really freaks me out, they give their life some sense of substance in reality by, by, by becoming a sort of obsessed with celebrities. It's like their life is full, and, and, and they've got what everyone wants, and somehow by being attached onto them, I, I kind of borrow some of their fullness. And, and you feel a little bit less empty and alienated when you, when you sort of like, like, like and I don't get this one, but this is what sells tabloids and People Magazine and all the other, Entertainment Weekly or whatever. You know, you really want to know, you really got to know what Angela, Jolie, and Brad Pitt argued about last week. I don't care. I really don't. Or, you know, I really don't care what Lindsay Lohan did two years ago or what Britney Spears is doing yesterday or what Hannah Montana, whatever her name is, uh, how she's saying last week. There's all this scuttle. But see, by being obsessed with them as though that mattered, as though it was any of your business, uh, well, it's a distraction from our own emptiness. And then sometimes when the stars fall, well, that can be kind of gratifying too because now you realize that they're sharing in your misery so you feel a little bit less pathetic because, uh, you know, their life is as bad as yours. But really, the fact that you're thinking that way shows that, in fact, your life is that pathetic. Uh, and I don't mean to bash all you guys who like celebrities, but why? See, I think a lot of our behavior is motivated by the sense of emptiness and we try to run from it. We try to medicate it. We try to dull it. And it's because we have some part of our life that is based on nothingness, the etherealness of being. And it's encroaching on us, and our hearts are telling us that it's going to leave. And that causes dread, existential angst, sickness unto death. Kingdom people, we need to let ourselves feel that. We need to be among those people who will courageously embrace the pain, as I preached several weeks ago, uh, and not run from that. Because that pain, the nothingness, that sense of dread, anxiety, dull depression is there to tell us something, to teach us something profound. 
And if we follow it through, what it will teach us is about the nothingness of our being, which in turn will lead us to the one thing that has being, that has real reality. The pain will drive us to the one sure foundation because at the end of the day, everything else is fading. Everything else is in the process of decay. It's all, Kansas had it right, it's all just dust in the wind. But there's one thing, there's one person who does not change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the rock of our salvation, the rock of our joy, the rock of our confidence, the Word of God, image of God. He lasts forever. His name is Jesus Christ. And in a world where everything's changing and everything's in the process of decay, the one that never began and never end is steadfast. That is the one foundation upon which everything must rest. Our life will be as whole as it is rooted in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The world is fading. Now God will resurrect the world and it will finally have a, an eternal state when there's a new heaven and a new earth. Everything that Jesus touches, he eternalizes. But this world as it is right now, it's dust in the wind. If you're clinging to it as a foundation, it will cause dread inside of you. Feel that. I'm convinced that we won't fully and exclusively base our life on Christ until we really get how empty everything else is. I mean, if you so long as you're at all enamored with the lie that there's some life found in the accumulation of wealth, to that degree, you'll be, you'll be borrowing off of Jesus Christ and pursuing that. When you see the emptiness of the wealth and the emptiness of the comfort and the emptiness of the fame and the emptiness of the fortune, the emptiness of all the other ways that we get life, only when you experience the, the vacuum of that lie, only when we have that pain are we driven to cling, to run, as we sang a little bit earlier, to Jesus Christ. The stone that the builders rejected is the cornerstone. He's got to bear the whole weight of the building. The question is, what kind of building are you building and what is the foundation? And the only one that you take with you into eternity is the one that's built on Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say three things here, but what more particularly does it mean to base your life on Jesus Christ? And then we're going to go into a time of, of uh, take up the offering and, and uh, share communion together. What does it mean? Number one, to make Jesus Christ the foundation for the house of your life, that you're building with every decision you make and every action you engage in, it means that we recognize that Jesus tells us everything we need to know about God. Base all of your existence on that. God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross, praying for our forgiveness. God is that kind of love. God is love. It's revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. Lock that in and make it the foundation of your existence. Purge from your mind every picture of God you have that doesn't agree with that. I don't care where you got it. Lock it in. If God looks like that, if my creator looks like that, well then... I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Life may be rough, may have a lot of ups and downs, but if that is what God is like, the one that I have to answer to, I'm going to be okay. Number two, to build your house on the foundation of Jesus Christ means we recognize that Jesus not only tells us everything we need to know about God, but tells us everything we need to know about ourselves. Who am I? What is my worth? What is my purpose? Let Jesus Christ tell you that, and he tells you that, once again, on Calvary. This is what God thinks about you. You were worth dying for. Now, there's a lot of other voices in our heads that are competing to form our identity. To want, they want to be foundations of our life. And to the degree that you believe them and they disagree with what God says, you're going to be a sick person. 
You're going to be building a house based on the dysfunction that you inherited from the fallen world. To make Jesus Christ the foundation means you resolve in your mind that Jesus reveals what God is like and Jesus reveals what, you're, what you are like. And you base the, your right relatedness with God on Jesus Christ, on what he did for you on Calvary, on the love that he, he expresses towards you on Calvary. Don't base your relationship with God on how good your performance is this week and how maybe you're a little more righteous than somebody else. And how many times you go to church and how many Bible verses you know or how much you tithe or don't tithe. Don't base your relationship with God based on your deeds. That's sinking sand. That's sinking sand. That'll come back to bite you sooner or later. And even when it's working for you, well, that's even worse because now you've got a big idol on your hands. Your, your foundation really is your great performance. How religious you are. Yay for you. That's going to sink. Base your relationship with God on Jesus Christ. See, it's a foundation because it's a past fact. You can't change anything in the past. Go ahead and try if you want. Uh, try to make it so that Einstein didn't, uh, you know, come up with the theory of relativity in 1915. Oh, too late. It already happened. You, know, you can't change the past. Try to make it so that you weren't born. Good luck with that one. The past is the past. It's solid. It's, it's fact. Well, Jesus dying for you on Calvary, revealing what God is like and revealing what you are like is past. It's done. It's a done deal. So that means it's true. When you were being born, it's true when you're going to be dying, which you already are. It's true about you. This is what God thinks about you. It's true. That's why it's a good foundation. It's unshakable. Nothing that happens to you can shake that. It can't change that. It's unconditional. It's there. The only question is, is what will you build on or not? Will you, will you make it your cornerstone or are you going to collide with it? That's the only question. But it's there. It's fact. It, 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 if things are going great, God's love for you is still expressed on Calvary. If things are going terrible, God's love is still on Calvary. If you're rich, God's love is on Calvary. If you're poor, God's love is on Calvary. If you're, if you're healthy, God's love is still expressed for you on, on Calvary. And if you found out last night that you're going to die in two weeks, it doesn't change. It doesn't change anything. That's why it's a foundation. Base your life on that, what is, which is unchanging. Same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what a foundation is supposed to do. And the third thing, what it means to base your house on the foundation of Jesus Christ is that you build the house that God wants you to build. Build the house that God wants you to build. What that means is, among other things, this. It means, first of all, you build a God building. You make, you make God the center of the building that, uh, that you're building with your life. You seek first the kingdom of God. It means you commit to living God's way. If you're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, you build a house that looks like Jesus Christ. You live in love as Christ loves you. You forgive your enemies. You don't retaliate. You share God's heart for the lost, the poor, uh, the marginalized. That's what it means to build a house on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It also means that you don't build a house to get God to love you or approve of you more. You build the house because God has already loved you. That's the foundation of the house. We're not trying to achieve something or acquire something, get God to applaud for us. Rather, to live in the kingdom means you don't live out of a center of emptiness trying to get full. That's always idolatry. I don't care how good it looks, and it's a bad foundation. Rather, given that the foundation's already been laid, you live out of a fullness of what's in you. Passionately build that house. Not to acquire anything you don't already have because you already have it all. That's the foundation. But you express the all through how we live and how we treat people and how we spend our money and, and all those kinds of decisions. So we don't build to acquire we build to express. This is why, by the way, in the kingdom, there's no place for ever comparing houses, judging houses, looking up or looking down to houses. 
What I mean by that is this. Sometimes it's, you know, Christians have their own little sort of superstar syndrome. And you look over at this person and, oh, look at the mansion they're building with their life. Oh, what a reward they're going to have in heaven. They're out there saving the lost, preaching the gospel to these stadiums of people and performing in this great band and saving kids and blah, 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 blah. Their life is so radical. And by comparison, I live in a little hut, a little hut of nothingness where I don't do much of anything for God. Those things are always, the world looks at these kind of things and quantifies it and, and, and assesses it and judges it. Or there are people who do the opposite. Look at the mansion I'm in, you pathetic hut. Uh, I'm accomplishing so much for God. Both of them are equally inappropriate. Look at To build on the foundation of Jesus Christ simply means you build the house that God wants you to build. Paul says that one person plants another person's wa waters, but God gives the increase. In other words, your reward is built on your obedience in planting and watering. How big it is or how small it is by world standards, well, that's up to God. That's totally on God. He gets the glory for all of that. The only thing we need to worry about is not how, how much can we measure that we produce, but are we walking in obedience? Remember the widow's might? Some people gave thousands of dollars in the offering. Yay! She had a penny, two pennies, puts it in. But Jesus says she gave more because she was obedient to God and she gave everything she had. You can't measure, you can't assess, you can't judge, and you can't feel indicted. The question is, is are you following God's leading and building the house that he wants you to build? It may be that when the kingdom fully comes, the person with the biggest mansion, their life, will be of somebody who said no to all of the world-shaking opportunities that were offered them. Maybe a person who had exceptional intelligence, exceptional talent, whatever, and they could have rocked the world and the, the whole Christian global community would have applauded them, but they said no to all of that because God called them to stay home with their disabled son. And no one ever knows about them, but God knows about them. And if they're doing what God called them to do, that's the mansion. The mansion is in the obedience, not the production. Often I think our, our, our sense of angst, existential angst, and, and a feeling of, of, of alienation and emptiness is because we, in this culture, are producers. We get our life from producing and measure, measuring things. We're going to produce something for God. And, uh, and, and so what happens is we're, we're enculturated with that. We bring it into the church. We hear the gospel. And now we just turn the gospel into another form of that. You know, what are you producing for God? How many souls have you saved this week? When was the last time you led someone to the Lord? You call yourself Christian. And it's like, I'm going to produce something big. I'll build a mansion for God. Well, no wonder you have this anxiety because when, when, when is it ever enough? We're not supposed to build to acquire approval or anything we, 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 we build to express. And the only thing that matters is, are you building the building that God's calling you to build? And don't worry about what God's calling someone else to build. This is your building. <laughs> what matters is that it's on the one foundation of Jesus Christ. And the final thing I'll just say about the building, and then we'll go to another time of worship, is this. That um, to have a house that is rooted on Jesus Christ as its one and only foundation means that the whole house has to be on the foundation. It doesn't mean one room of the house is on the foundation. No, it's to be the foundation for the whole house. And the reason that's important is because we tend to compartmentalize. We're addicted to compartmentalization. We file things. Here's the holy, here's the secular. Here's the part that where I you know, really get into God stuff. Here's the part where I just kind of forget about God. We've got these different rooms. The fun room, the work room, finance room, marriage room, Jesus room. 
But the cornerstone isn't there for a room, it's there for the whole house. And so to build your house on the foundation of Jesus Christ means the whole house is integrated. In fact, the walls have come down, the whole thing just belongs to him. What it means to live under the reign of God is that we invite God into everything that we do. So when you're digging a ditch, that's not like different than going to church. No, you, you, you're doing different activities for sure, but it all belongs to God because it's all part of his house. So you invite God into the digging of the ditch. And digging the ditch, that's your job, uh, can become a, a sacred moment if you're inviting God in that. And you just, you're working for God, so you do the best dig, dig ditching, ditching, dig, digging that you can possibly do. Do the best you can do, do it passionately for the Lord, and now it becomes something sacred. You bless the people around you, it becomes something sacred. Invite them into the dig, the ditch digging. Gosh, that's hard to say. I should plan my analogies ahead of time, and then I would come up with ones I can actually say. That'd be nice. Or if you're a plumber, that's a little easier to talk about. Or if you're a truck driver, or you run an agency, or, or you build three-season porches, it doesn't matter. It's all part of the kingdom. Invite God into that. Make it part of the ministry. You see, what happens is if we don't do that, part of the inner anxiety and emptiness, the, the angst that we have on the inside, is because of the compartmentalization. If, if your job is nothing more than a meaningless way to make money, well, over time, that's going to cause some anxiety in you. Because that means that's just time that you're flushing down the toilet and you can't get it back. And as you go on in life, you realize that you're running out of hours. That causes an emptiness. Ah! So don't, don't compartmentalize it. That's God time. Make God central to everything that you're doing. There's no, playing with your kids is, is a supremely meaningful act of worship when you're doing it with God involved in that. Make it love to your spouse is an act of worship. When, you, when God's all part of it, don't compartmentalize anything. The fun time, the marriage time, the kid time, the work time, the finance time, it's all part of one house built on one foundation. And you let God integrate the whole thing and weave it all together. And now, there's no moment that is wasted. It all becomes uh, useful to the kingdom and it's all eternalized. Everything that Jesus touches gets eternalized. And so when we build a house with every decision we make and every thought we think and every word we speak, well, that becomes part of this eternal house built on the one foundation of Jesus Christ. What kind of stone is Jesus in your life? The stone that the builders rejected is the cornerstone for the kingdom and therefore for our lives individually. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. I want uh, uh, us to sing this old hymn as we take up this offering. An old hymn written by Edward Moat in 1834 for a friend whose wife was on her deathbed. She completed it just before she died. It just so caps, captures the whole point of this parable. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. However sweet that frame is, that house you're framing, I'm not going to trust that. I'll only trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. There's no foundation that can be laid other than the one that has been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. So, fathers, we go into this time now of worshiping you by taking up this offering. We pray, Lord God, that you would be our one and only foundation and that everything we do, including how we steward your money, would be guided by you. Build your kingdom through us as you build this house in submission to you. Be glorified during this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing this out. On Christ the solid rock, I stand.
We're going to now celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is a sign of the covenant. Whenever God uh, gave a covenant, entered into a covenant, there was ways of reminding people about it. This is his reminder. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were going to eat at the Last Supper, and he broke it in front of them, this loaf, and he said, this bread is my body, which is to be broken for you. So whenever you take this bread and eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember what I did to enter into this covenant with you. This is the foundation. And then he took the cup and lifted it before them and said, this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting, unchanging covenant because this cup represents my blood. And so when you take this cup and drink from it, uh, do it in remembrance of me, the blood that was shed, the broken body and the blood that was shed. That tells us all we need to know about God. That tells us all we need to know about ourselves. That tells us the foundation that our house is to be built on. And so I encourage us all to take this communion as a recommitment to make him our one and only foundation. We invite everybody here to be a part of this. It doesn't matter whether this is your home church or not. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and understand what this is about, then join us in this. We have tables on the side of the, the, the auditorium. And as we're worshiping God, and I encourage you to enter into worship with all five senses and imagine who you're singing to and what you're singing about. But when you feel led, just stand up and go and, and take communion there. If you want to do it with your spouse, or your family, or your small group, uh, that, that's perfect. Just, it's supposed to be a communal thing, so go and take that. Just take the bread, dip it in, in the, the juice, and then take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, remembering the covenant, the one foundation that we have. After that, if you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to come forward to the altar and worship God here, feel free to do that. Just go as the Lord leads. So Holy Spirit, now invade us. Draw our hearts and minds and attention to you and make this a meaningful reminder of what you've done to provide for us the one foundation that lasts forever. Amen. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how Transform us by your love. That is the one thing in life you can count on. That relentless, passionate, unimprovable, unsurpassable, hurricane-like, ocean-like love expressed to us on Calvary. That is God to us. That is 
that defines God, it defines us, it defines what life's about. To build your house on that means you just let that love blow into every area of your life. Amen. How he loves us. How he loves us. I want to invite the prayer teams to come forward. And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for this morning, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Or if you just want to sit in your chair for a while or come to the altar and pray, join some of the folks that are up here, I encourage you to do that. I also want to encourage you to sign up to become part of our children's ministry, Heroes Gates. We really need people to step up and, and uh, embrace that ministry. So you can sign up for that out in the gathering area. Visit with one another out there. Show some good New Testament hospitality. Look for someone who doesn't have anyone to talk to and talk to them. Let them take this love. Build your house on that and let it ooze from you. That's where we're supposed to be, a sweet-smelling aroma to the rest of the world. This is what people are hungry for. They're all walking around with that ache in their heart. Overflow. Just overflow with God's love. Fathers, we leave this place. We do it with the awareness of your love. Seal that in our hearts. Purge from us any temptation to build on any other foundation and build any other house. God, help us to have you as our sole source of worth, security, confidence, joy, well-being, identity, security, everything we need is found in you. Let your love explode in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and spread the gospel.